Hey. Thank you all for coming. Thanks all people I invited that that showed up. Yay. Um, And um, so I guess there was a there was a review in the LA Times today, which I was I was super excited about. that talked about how incredibly dark this book is, and I'm, it is right. It's a little dark, but there, you know, I mean, there's not that many murders, and some of them are suicides, so that's better. Um, and you know, there's the, the, the thing I just want I want to convey is that there's there's some funny stuff, even though, you know, it may be said by people who are just out of prison or who are heroin addicts. Um, but um, okay, so I'm gonna I'm just gonna read a little bit from the second part of the book, which is from the perspective of well, I don't even have to I don't even have to set it up I don't think because I think he he explains everything. Um, <clears throat> my mom had been dead almost a year, and my dad was losing his mind. He would hang out with this guy named Akil Ozarowski, who I guess was once his patient. They would meet up at a bar down the road called Parnell's and they'd talk through their paranoid conversations, pints of beer and shots of Jameson whiskey, and then my dad would walk home through the suburban greenery of Cleveland Heights, carrying a six-pack of beers that he bought from CVS and a pack of Marlboro cigarettes, and the streets were utterly empty, and the trees were dripping from a thunderstorm, and he'd be stumbling along in the dark, and his feet would splash in puddles on the sidewalk, and the old houses would stare at him, their windows lightless, and he was a widower. 40-something years old, sad and wobbly and flushed and intoxicated with a plastic bag swinging from his hand. One time he saw a deer. One time he thought he saw a bear walking down Briarwood. It's not completely improbable, he told me. There are between 70 and 90 wild black bears in the state of Ohio. Was that true? How crazy was he? Maybe a lot. I didn't know for sure. I was 18 and supposedly starting college and living home alone with him. My brother Dennis was out of the picture, a sophomore at Cornell, very, very busy, not interested in what was happening with his crazy dad and loser brother at home. I remember waking up and hearing my dad come in and I saw his silhouette in my door tilting back and forth a little and he had for some reason decided that he needed to wake me up to inform me about a serial killer, some person murdering college boys, he said, drowning them. How 1990s, I thought. He was investigating it, he said, possibly writing a book about it and I was like, cool. And then I rolled over and faced the wall. I've heard about that, my friend Rabbit said the next day. It's like an urban legend among college kids. Supposedly there's this like serial killer who kidnaps drunken bros and then tortures them and dumps them into a river so it looks like a drowning. They call the guy Jack Daniels, which I think is hilarious, or else some people think it might be some kind of cult initiation ritual. He had his hypodermic kit out and was cooking some heroin on a spoon with his lighter. He grinned at me. How'd your dad get into that? He's really losing his shit, isn't he? Rabbit liked the needle. He preferred it to snorting or smoking, but when he heard his mom open the door to the basement, when he heard her slow, heavy steps begin to clump down the stairs, I watched the way he sprang quickly to tuck the syringe under the cushion of the couch. He put the little baggie of heroin in his pocket and the spoon into a coffee cup. He left the bong where it was on the coffee table in front of us. Bruce? She called, which was Rabbit's actual first name. Sweetheart, I need your help. Rabbit looked at me sidelong. One of the first personal things he explained about himself was that no one, no one called him Bruce. Whenever that name was spoken, he'd give me a warning glance. What do you want? 
he said now, looking hard into my eyes. Ma, I'm busy. I can't reach the cupboard above the refrigerator. With my leg like it is, I don't want to try to climb up on a chair. Ma, he said, what do you need so bad in one in the morning? Why don't you just go to sleep? Uh, I murmured. I made some kind of weird gesture thing with my hand. Rabbit, I could help her if... But Rabbit froze me with a glare. Go to sleep, Ma, Rabbit said, which made no difference. Like in a horror movie, his mom kept plunking down the stairs and then her body came into view. She was somewhere in her 40s, not really bad looking for her age. Barefoot, sweatpants, a t-shirt that was cut off at the midriff. Okay, I'll admit it, she said. It's vodka. I put a bottle of vodka in that cabinet and I need it. God damn it, rabbit, I'm in pain. And actually, she probably was in pain. Rabbit's mom had cancer, ovarian cancer. How fucking fucked up is that, Rabbit said. Cancer of the vag. And his his mouth twitched, very rabbit-like. And yet, even more fucked up, unspeakable, was that my own mom had died of that same cancer. To me, this was kind of the the, the kind of coincidence that could make you suddenly think that some higher power was, or whatever, was watching you, and not in a friendly way. This was, wasn't something I could say to Rabbit, of course. Rabbit knew how my mom died, obviously, but he had studiously unknown it. And it was not something that would ever appear in our conversations. I was supposed to be going to college. I hadn't gone in for the whole apply to a bunch of expensive schools and wait with bated breath to see if you get into Ivy League thing that my brother had turned into such a huge drama. Instead, I was going to live at home and take classes downtown at Cleveland State, and I'd gone so far as to register for an English and a math and a political science, though as it turned out, school had started two weeks ago, and I had somehow not attended any of the classes yet. (laughs) My dad didn't know this, of course. He doled out money for books and expenses without even blinking an eye. I guess he'd gotten some money from my mom's insurance. And honestly, the majority of our conversations involved him opening his wallet and handing me some cash. Sometimes he would pop up and attempt an amateurish performance of a dad. He would go off on some digression about how constellations aren't real, or how kale is really good for you, or how he wished we could have gone camping more often when I was little. Did I want to go camping? Or would he, he would lay some wisdom on me, Sufi wisdom, he called it, which somehow seemed completely random and impenetrable. Then he'd roam off, trailing his wisps of positivity through the house. Mostly, we avoided each other successfully. My uncle Rusty called late at night, and usually when he called, I was extremely high. Picture me spread eagle in my underwear on my bed. I'd been without language for maybe two hours, staring at the textures on the ceiling, which are possibly rotting leaves or centipedes, marching single file or Cthulhu's. Imagine that my phone would begin to vibrate from somewhere underneath my body and it sent a slow tentacle of awareness through me. And at last, I put my phone to my ear and my eyes were still on that fucking insanely alive ceiling. And my uncle Rusty said, hey man, His voice was kind of scratchy and deep, and it made me think of stoners and heavy metal music from the 1980s, the intonation and inflection and so forth. First time I heard him, it occurred to me that there are certain ways of speaking, maybe even certain ways of moving your tongue and your voice box that only a particular generation of human beings learn how to do. I sometimes thought that my uncle had a way of talking that was preserved in amber from 1983, and even from the first time he spoke to me, I thought it was amazing. 
Hey, I said, after a pause that seemed really overlong. I was imagining him with a beard, maybe wearing a paisley bandana. Shitty orthodontia, but not in a bad way necessarily. Man, he said, are you on dope again? Kind of, I said. I'm shrooming. He was silent for a moment. Then he said, I'm sorry to hear that, young man. I thought you said you were going to... I am, I said. I am. Rabbit's mom and I smoked a little weed together, and then I drove her to the chemotherapy. The infusion room was what she called it. She told... uh, I'm going to skip it. I started talking to my Uncle Rusty about six months ago. This was after he was released from prison, after most of the stuff that my dad had testified at the trial was proved to have been a lie. Also, for about a half year after my mom died, he kept his distance for a while. I didn't want to intrude, Rusty said. I mean, yeah, it's a lot to deal with. I wanted to give you all some space. Not that it mattered. No one would talk to him, not my dad, not my Aunt Kate. He had nobody in the world. They just put him out at the prison gates and the government didn't make reparations for what they'd done to him. They didn't even give him apologies. Basically, he got so screwed there are no words for it. His trial had happened back during the 1980s when the idea of satanic ritual abuse got very popular. That's how he put it. The idea of satanic ritual abuse got very popular, he said. And it made me think of a crowd of eager fans rushing toward the stage as if satanic ritual abuse were a rock band. I'd never heard of that term before, satanic ritual abuse. It sounded so corny that I kind of chuckled until he explained it to me, and then I started doing some internet searches. According to the World Wide Web, satanic ritual abuse was basically an urban legend, a moral panic, according to Wikipedia, which the people of the 1980s started to believe was real. Seems like a lot of people accepted it as truth, that there were hidden satanic cults all over the country, secretly doing human sacrifices and torturing children and calling up Satan in graveyards. There was actually a news special on television exposing Satan's underground, which you can watch on YouTube. You will not believe their hair. You will not believe how simple-minded the people of the 1980s are. Looking back from the future, it's kind of embarrassing how superstitious and gullible they were back then. There was this famous reporter named Geraldo Rivera, and he says, estimates are that there are over one million Satanists in this country. The majority of them are linked in a highly organized, very secretive network. From small towns to large cities, they have attracted FBI attention to their satanic ritual, child abuse, child pornography, and grisly satanic murders. The odds are that this is happening in your town. And you think, okay, that's a knee slapper. But then you go on to read about how the whole country was mesmerized by this bullshit. So there were local police departments starting their own cult task forces, and there were arrests and witch trials where preschoolers testified that they had seen their teachers disemboweling infants and drinking their blood, kids claiming they'd been forced to have orgies while hooded figures watched. Psychiatrists were swamped with people who had recovered memories of past satanic abuse that they'd repressed. You travel through a K-hole of link after link after link as the stories grow more absurd and impossible as they go along. You read that Father James Labar appointed chief exorcist for the Archdiocese of New York by Cardinal O'Connor spoke of an international conference of Satanists that he claimed took place in Mexico in which the Satanists discussed plans for world domination. 
It was said there was a global network of the ultra-rich who made use of flunkies from local police departments and who had minions who were school superintendents and CIA agents and congressmen and that women and children were ritually sacrificed or forced into sex slavery and there were bathing in blood of infants and children were boiled alive in front of a host of Satanists and their organs were lavishly eaten. <laughs> it seems like people must have truly believed this shit because as it happened, SRA was a big component in Uncle Rusty's trial. They brought in the fact that Rusty loved death metal and that he had drawn pentagrams on his school notebooks and basically made, they made the trial about satanicness rather than the fact that they had no real evidence. My dad testified that he had seen Rusty sacrifice baby rabbits to Satan, which my Uncle Rusty admits was true. He really did kill baby rabbits with a brick in the middle of a pentagram that he had drawn on the floor of an old abandoned house. At the time, he thought it was hilarious. He loved trying to freak my dad out. It's probably not forgivable when you do shit like that, my Uncle Rusty said. And then he was silent for a long time so that I checked my phone to make sure we hadn't been disconnected. I cleared my throat. I was like 14, 15, and your dad was about 8, I guess. And he would follow me around like a puppy dog, and I just wanted to scare him, maybe, to make him go away. Shit, I fucked up so bad when I was your age, I was seriously an awful person. Well, I said... He knew he had a lot of amends to make because he was abusive to my dad. And if my dad wouldn't talk to him, maybe he could pass on the amends to me. I just want to be an uncle to you, he said. Like a real uncle. Someone you can trust and count on. And then he told me, I'm not going to judge you. Because I've been in all the dark places, son. And I've tried every drug there is, and I know what it's like, bro. My mom died too. All right. See, it's not, not dark. No, none of those characters will die. Oh, my God. Brian Pitts. Hi. I haven't seen him in 25 years. Um, so cool. Um, so, yeah, none of them, well, some of them will die. Most of them will die. <laughs> um, but in a funny way. <laughs> Um, I'm glad to take some questions if people have questions. Um, I, I, I mean, I also have my 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 former editor here, who uh, is uh, the editor that taught me how to write a novel. So you can blame him. So yay, Dan Svetanka. I'm one of my students who's a novelist. Is here, Katie Disabato. Oberlin Grant. Yeah. Hi. I was just curious because there's so many interesting components. Which was this kernel? Like, which was the seed of the Muslim idea? Yeah, I mean, it, it started a really long time ago when my brother-in-law told me this story about um, this series of, of drownings that, it, that was happening in the Midwest uh, in the early 2000s. And um, he, was going to, he was going to college uh, in, at, at University of Wisconsin, and one of his friends uh, was, was, uh, was drowned, um, and, the, and the police said it was, you know, just a, a, you know, an accidental drowning. Um, but he and his friends were convinced that this was the work of a serial killer. And that was the, the, the original sort of inspiration. I couldn't figure out what I was going to do with it, because I knew I didn't want to set the book on, on a college campus. That's one thing I promise I'll never do. Um, but um, but it, it, was, it was definitely sort of moving around in the back of my mind. And then 
some of these other elements started to come in as well. Yeah, Katie. Um, what was the process for developing like the voice of like the teenage boy that you were writing from? Um, well, I mean, I, I, I was drawing a lot on um, what was going on with my students. Um, I, I mean, that, 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 that helped. Um, it turns out my, you know, this was written when my son was about this age, too, and he, and he was pretty helpful. Um, I actually dedicate the, the book to him because he, he, would, he was the person that read through this all the way yeah. through as I was, um, as I was writing it. Um, and, and would definitely correct me whenever I screwed up certain <laughs> things. Um, yeah, it would be like, Dad, no one, no one would ever say that. <laughs> yeah? Um, so you come from a tradition of deeply ironic or satiric writing, um, and there, it's a difficult tone and edge to cut when you write, and, and I, there's a woman in the audience right now, her father's one of the best American writers in that thing, um, but who who are the people that you see as predecessors, and, and how do you learn from? You know, I, I think what you write is very difficult. I don't think every writer can write from the perspective you do. It's it's kind of a, a, a it's like humor or something, or being or poetry almost. You have to have a natural mm-hmm. um, indication to go that way, right? And so I'm just wondering if who fed you, who nourished you. Well, I mean, I think the the writers that, that were most important to me when I was a kid were Ray Bradbury and Ray Bradbury, yay, um, and um, and Shirley Jackson um, meant a lot to me as a writer. Um, and you know, I I was a, a big fan of sort of the um, the Lovecraft group. Uh, and then when I got into college, um, I learned that I wasn't really allowed to write about that kind of stuff, um, and that you know what I really should be writing was was um, was straight up realism. And then uh, you know I, I, I sort of really discovered and fell in love with people like Raymond Carver and uh, um, Alice Munro and Anne Beatty, and so you know after a while you know I I I was trying to you know like write a good enough um, Anne Beatty imitation that I could get into the New Yorker, um, but I also realized that I had kind of lost, a little bit lost what the 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 soul of of what was driving my my work, which which was the sort of dark stuff and the and the stuff that had kind of a magic element to it or a or a ghost element to it, um, and I I mean I think. Starting with the the collection among the missing, I started to sort of move back in that direction, and 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 to try to write stories that had some kind of element of magic or ghosts or 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 horror, while at the same time you know also having some of the literary stuff that I liked in 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 the the writers I was being taught in college. So I have a follow up because you said so much that impresses me, especially with Shirley Jackson. Um, I think the feel with her. And, and the political times we're going through now, it almost calls for more than realism. Realism is a failure given the cultural moment I think that we're living through. A lot of writers do feel that. And so they're looking for reinvention, they're looking for new answers. And I, I certainly feel Shirley Jackson had similar problems, at least in gender, were facing her during the time mm-hmm. she created this. And it, 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 I think it allows the culture so much in your writing. Do you feel that you're in process, in dialogue with the culture that's troubled right now, that you're really sitting with a lot of culture makers in a position of, of pointing a direction? I don't know. I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't really think about things like that very often. Um, 
I mean, in terms of like being able to, I mean, I'm a novelist, so I don't really probably speak to, to very much of the culture. Um, you know, I mean, let's face it. Um, but I mean, I, I mean, certainly the culture that we that that, that we live in influences the way that I the, the way that I write and what I write about. And one of the things that I mean, it turns out that you know Americans have. This is not the first time that we've been that we've been um, sort of obsessed with fake news, and the first it's not the first time that the flim flam man has come to town um, in America. I mean, it happens over and over. And this, the, you know, this this uh, you know the stuff that I was I was reading about about the satanic ritual abuse that is uh, you know was completely crazy looking back on it, but it was it was so widely believed. Um, and you know, of course, we have you know the Russians are coming in the 1950s, and we've got um you know the uh you know the Salem witch trials it, it, at the very beginning of our country so that there is this you know this 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 sort of hysteria this sense of panic um but also a, also a kind of shared delusion that that happens sort of repeatedly in our country um and that i mean that, that, to some extent that's this is a, a you know this is a more personal story, but it's definitely a story that's about delusion. When Shirley Jackson dealt with that six or seven years ago, it gave feminism a new direction today. So I think that the work you're doing is really important. You know, when you're in that mode of reinvention, you're creating solutions. That's how I feel as a reader. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Yes? Uh, do you think there's anything inherently unnerving or haunted about Cleveland, Ohio? Um, yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I, I, I love it there. I actually really love it there, but it is a Rust Belt city. It's a city that, that saw its, you know, like, its glory days a hundred and... 20 years ago um, and so the, and, and there's still a lot of the uh, you know of these you know like beautiful old mansions that are still standing but they're covered in you know vines and 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 weeds and stuff um, and there are you know there's a you know there's there's a there's a kind of um, austerity just to the weather itself um, a, a large if, if you're looking for a cure for today's beautiful day a large portion of this takes place in Cleveland in January um, so that will you know it'll th just give you a different kind of mood if you're if you're looking for one <laughs> yeah um. You mentioned having your son read this while it was in progress, and you have an old editor here. I'd love if you could talk about who reads what when when you're writing. Um, I mean, it kind of it, it it kind of depends, but I need at least one sane person um, to to help me through. You know, like because I mean, I can really go. I mean, the, the, there was a point where this was just this was really out of control, um, and uh, I got talked out of some 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 things that I, it was it was important that I was talked out of. Um, but I really I, I do have a, a pretty you know like a, a, a network of people that I that I that I show stuff to from a from a pretty early stage, and who you know like read as I go along. Um, and I know some people think that's a really terrible idea, or or just don't like that idea. But it, it's it's very useful to me, just to keep myself grounded. Yeah. And it's nice to have that, because it's you know like there's this, um, I guess, shared uh, fantasy that you're that, that you're building with with somebody, which is nice. I love the way you um, 
the way you read, Dan. Oh, thank you. It's, it's so beautiful because, and I think the reason that there's so much of the humor in your characters is because they're all so incredibly human and you like them so much and you understand them so much and you go so inside them. So, you know, you look like a teenager just now. No, no thank you. <laughs> I've been I've been I've been working for years to 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 look like a teenager as you can see. <laughs> yeah, but it's 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 you know it's it's a kind of uh, joy and glee in these in these characters and that's so infectious when you read your work because you know you really reading your work you you do end up in the shoes of whoever the character is and that's and they're and they're always then so moving too. Like your characters. Well, thank you. always have like this really audacious movement in your plots and in this one I noticed um, it's sort of like made concrete where you have like two parts of the story happening simultaneously um, would you just talk about like how do you um, structure your stories do you think about that beforehand or are you just go like, from the beginning to through the end and whatever presents itself to you um, well I mean I think one thing that I that, that that's nice about having a, a, a genre piece is that it, it's a container that you that that has that has a given structure, right? I mean, I as a, as a as a kid growing up, it was like the heyday of the serial killer thriller, and I consu- you know I consumed mass market paperbacks. You know, over and, and so, I mean, that structure was really in my head already, and I didn't have to I didn't have to like map it out. Um, which is good for me because I tend to I tend to think more in, in like pieces and in collage sort of form and so I mean I wrote most of this in these in in the the kind of small chapters that that, that I was that I was reading where it's like you know a, a, a page long chapter or a half a page long chapter and then I I sort of began to to form them together and put them together um, and it you know it, it I mean the first draft. As Dan probably remembers, is always a, a huge mess, um, and then um, the second draft, I'm able to kind of go back and figure things out. But I like to have a lot of openness for that first draft and not to know what's going to happen, and just sort of let things come out as as I get to know the characters and as I get to know the plot. Um, there was a um, there was a point in um, when I was writing this um, that my son said, "Wait." Dad, you're not going to kill my character, are you? And I was like, I wasn't planning on... Well, uh, wait a minute. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> you know, things can, ter- th- things can turn around. Not, that didn't mean that, that's not necessarily a spoiler. Not necessarily. <laughs> yeah. uh, I have a quick two-part question. One is, I'm wondering if you can share a little bit of your journey in terms of um, creating dialogue both authentic and engaging. And then the other question is, um, in terms of getting your process onto the page, if you could touch on what kind of the structure of your day-to-day writing practice looks like. Mm-hmm. I don't, I mean, I, I like writing dialogue. I don't feel like um, I necessarily know what what's... Um, I guess I'm always I'm always thinking that dialogue has uh, should be sort of at odds in some ways with what's actually what, what's actually meant. So that um, and, and this and this may be because I'm from the Midwest and nobody ever says what they really think. Um, so you know, 
someone, one of my teachers once told me that, that dialogue is something that people do to one another. Um, that, it, that, that, it, that, it's, that it's action and that it's often um, it has, it, it, it's, it's the same as someone um, you know, doing something physical. And I think that that, that stuck with me. Um, the idea that it, it, that it has it has both um, a, a sense of moving forward, but also a sense of action upon the other characters. Um, in terms of my writing process, uh, I have learned that um, if given my druthers, I will stare out the window. Um, I will fold laundry. I will um, do anything but but what I'm supposed to be doing, and so I I, I really have gotten to, to to be disciplined about it. I set a timer, um, and I work for half an hour, you know, like without stopping, and then I give myself a reward, um, and then and then and then I go back and do the and do and do that as many times as I can, um, I, and I think that also adds to the you know the kind of the fragmentary nature of 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 the uh, first of the first drafts because I do a lot of stuff like in half hour spurts um, but that's been very helpful to me just the whole idea of writing without stopping because I used to be one of those writers that would um, write a sentence and then be like hmm is that the most beautiful sentence I could have written no I'm going to start over um, and you know you, you, I mean, you, you, you can spend a lot of time just polishing a sentence and not get anywhere in a novel because um, a novel is a lot of sentences um, so that, I mean that's that's one of the hard things about making the transition between short stories and novels is just you can't spend as much time with that you know like obsession with um, is this sentence perfect? Yeah. Um, so I just in in uh, regarding what you were saying before about liking Lovecraft and then sort of reining it in and trying to be Anne Beatty instead. <laughs> right. Right. It's really a weird thing to say. I know. I know. I know. <laughs> But um, but I'm sort of wondering, like you always, not always, but in everything I've read so far, you take things up to this sort of tense point between what's possible before it spills over into what we think is impossible um, and supernatural. And it's a kind of weird tension that is very rare and very strange. And I wonder, I don't exactly know how to say it, but if you feel like you're keeping the supernatural at bay constantly or if you seek out and feel completely comfortable in that tension now? I feel really comfortable in that tension and I, I mean, I like the, that ambiguity. I mean, there, I, I think there's, there's um, some ambiguity in, in, in whether there's a supernatural element in this book that hasn't actually come up yet so I'm, I, I'll be interested when somebody finally decides to talk about it but um, yeah, it's important to me to have that tension sort of always there um, and the, I mean, I, I have written a few things where it, where it actually does completely spill over and it's yeah yeah it's a monster it's a it's it's a ghost or whatever um but most of the time i like i like it to kind of be a little of both and that may be something that i learned from from people like shirley jackson and um and from uh bradbury more than i learned from lovecraft yes sir yeah is there is there a part of writing a longer than like a novel that you like the most like redoing drafts or organizing it I like 
Yeah, I mean, I like I like this the the point where you um, are kind of immersed in a world where where you. I mean, there's this amount. There's a certain amount of world building that happens where. Um, eventually, it it is this alternate universe that you can go to, and you know, I, I mean, at first, it's it, you know, it's it's hard to build it, and then at a certain point, you get you 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 get so. Um, good at self hypnotism that you can go there with a with you know with a, like a snap trigger and I can be with these characters I, I mean I can hang out with them if I want um, and I love that immersion that moment of that moment of being completely immersed in a, in, a, in a world that I've created but now is outside of me I mean because once you, you, you I mean at first you're creating it and then it becomes its own sort of thing it exists like an organ outside of your body. Um, I like what she said a lot, and I, the only author I know, George Saunders, who really loves his characters, he just loves them, mm-hmm. no matter how weird they get, or where they go, or what they do, he loves them. I think that's a really tough quality for an author to master, and especially when the fashion was to have all these um, unreliable, despicable people as characters, people in these books, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I'm kind of troubled by it, because again, I don't think every author can write characters that are loved. And I'm just wondering what you think of that quality. Well, I mean, my problem is that I love kind of unreliable, despicable people. (laughs) But... um, They're doing the best they can. They are. Damn it. Um, Yeah, I mean, no, I mean, I I do think that that having... having, the, it bothers me when when it feels like people are making fun of their characters, or or, or particularly when when they are just using the characters as puppets, and, and you don't feel anything for them. Um, that, but um, I don't know. I don't know how how to write any other way. I mean, I I mean, I feel like the like being committed to a character and being interested in them is the only way I can I, I can be interested to write a book about them. Alex. So there's there's a kind of short story version of your brain and a novelist version of your brain, and most of the time it seems to exist fairly well hand in hand. I'm wondering, at least for you, in terms of your own process end of it, how you feel that that kind of crossbreeding between short story and novel benefits you, and also how it kind of you know stumbling blocks you find along the way. Um. I don't know for sure. I mean, I think that's a hard question. Um, I guess it, it. I mean, it. It benefits me because I because I, I think I have I have the ability to write something real that, that 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 that's really tight and that and that can and and that they can get from point A to point B pretty quickly. Um, um, but I think that I tend to. Um, to rely pretty heavily on the on on the on this kind of fragment thing and on on the on on you know sort of multiple narrators because that has more of a feel of the of of, of the short story to it and um, I, I don't really see that as a problem but it is but it is sort of a, something that I know is a, a crutch for me. Cool. <laughs> Oh, what? Uh, what what are you thinking about or what are you ruminating on moving towards next? I don't know the world or people. Um, well, I've got I've got two, I've got two book proposals out um, and um, 
one is one is kind of a Western um, that I've, 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 I've had it, I've had it in the back of my mind for a while, um, and another one is uh, a, a conspiracy spy thriller set in contemporary America um, that hopefully will be funny. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I don't know. Um, so anyway, those are the, those are the two things. And of course, um, I'm also in town pitching Ill Will as uh, as, a, as a series for um, Nickelodeon. Um, <laughs> so we'll see how that goes. <laughs> You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.